Hello and welcome to Accent of Women, a show by and about women from diverse cultures and languages right across the world. I'm Giselle Hanna. On today's program, we look at the country Rwanda. The period between April 7 and July 4 is known as Kwibuku. It means remembrance. This period marks the 100 days of genocide in 1994, where the Tutsis were targeted by the Hutus and almost a million Tutsis were murdered. This year is 29 years since the genocide and Rwanda has been catapulted once again into the international spotlight because of the UK offshore processing deal that was made with the Rwandan government. Yet we know very little about the country and very little about its people. Over the next two shows, I'll be speaking with Stephanie Kabanyana Kanyandekwe about Rwanda, the legacy of the genocide, how the country's healing and what things are like today. Here's Stephanie. I'm Stephanie Kabanyana Kanyandekwe. I'm a Rwandan-British artist and composer. Um, on a week-to-week basis, I'm also a radio broadcaster. I've got a show on ABC Classic where I put to good use my composition degree. Um, but outside of Radioland, I create spaces for audience interaction and participation where we discuss communally what it means to be of a culture, what our cultures mean to us respectively and find ways of documenting them in a meaningful manner that can live on way past the project and can be taken home to live through people's daily lives. Wonderful. That sounds amazing. Thank you. And Stephanie, I I did invite you onto the program today to, to talk about the genocide in Rwanda. And of course, listeners would know that the genocide between April and July of 1994 began after Rwanda's Hutu president. He was killed when his plane was shot down over Kigali on the 6th of April. Can you tell me how this event sparked a genocidal civil war that lasted four months and saw more than 800,000 people killed? I can, but I'm really glad that you asked this question straight up. And during this time uh, where we have 100 days of mourning, so from April 7th up until July 4th, which is known as our Liberation Day, as this is generally the most sensitive time to talk to any Rwandan, um, regardless of their historic uh, ethnical, ethnic group or placing. Um, and so I'm just going to preface our conversation by saying, in general, I would say if anybody's curious about this type of topic, perhaps avoid April to July in talking to Rwandans about it um, because it is so sensitive and it's something that has so so profoundly affected everybody. In going through what happened and why, it's a monumentally complex um, answer that spans over a few hundred years, a few different types of colonial rule and um, some very complicated European politics that Africa has continually been wrapped up in. Um, to, to your first point around the, the plane coming down and that sparking uh, the genocide on April 7th, it was actually two presidents who were in that plane and that's an important factor as well. So it's also the Burundian president of the time, Cyprian Ntariyamira, um, so it was it was a deliberate act that 
took down two people who were thought to have a great connection with France and have the support of France as France has long been interested in having a, a direct neighbour bordering the English-speaking countries of East Africa, so looking at Uganda, Kenya, and so on, um, and using a kind of crux point in the centre of those English-speaking countries to infiltrate and have political and resource power. Um, so I would say, and I know this isn't the cleanest and easiest answer for anybody, but it is also the most appropriate. There is a, an amazing report that came out last year that has a very distinct and clear language style that lays out exactly what happened in the lead up to this genocide, why it happened um, and how different groups, so Belgians, French, etc., were involved in various ways um, and how the world knew about it, especially the UN, but nothing was done. So this report is called the, the Muse Report and uh, it's freely available up online. If you just Google the Muse Report, Rwanda 2021, it will come up. It's um, less of a flip through and more of a book. I think it's about 658 pages, something like that. So expect, you know, a real sit down read. But I, I would implore you, if you're listening and you're interested, to read that as a great baseline and just understand that as Rwandans now, what we've inherited from colonial practice over a number of different groups was a very deliberate separation of groups of people, often over the most ridiculous things. For example, sometimes you were designated an ethnic group because of how tall you were or the shape of your nose. Um, so, you know, this separation of groups of people to pit them against each other to keep a place in turmoil so that you can then offer, uh, you as in European groups, can then offer um, military, economic and health support is a mechanism of colonial rule that we've seen time and time again. Um, and Rwanda, despite being a fairly landlocked country, being a very small country in the centre of Africa, um, sadly was just the last in the long line of African countries to fall prey to this type of long line manipulation. And the other thing I would also say is that it's key to know genocide doesn't happen overnight. It's not something that everyone just decides, like wakes up and decides to do. This is, this is a, a series of acts that have been almost brainwashed through groups of people, through education systems, over generations that boil up to a point. There's no way that you can kill a million people in a hundred days without having some form of plan. The machine of war and the machine of genocide um, was very thoroughly thought out. And again, there were warning signals for this. And there were lots of uh, international groups who were saying to groups like the UN, we can see that there's trouble here and, and support needs to happen. But unfortunately, it, it didn't happen. There was no um, outside uh, circuit breaking at this point and so the genocide went ahead and it's in July that uh, the world really started to come to Rwanda's aid at that point. 
Well, my next question may be met with a very similar answer because the way that we understand the genocide is that it arose because of tensions between the Hutus and Tutsis and that the Hutus, uh, well, um, committed the genocide against the Tutsis. And of course, I appreciate that in order to understand those tensions, we would need to go back to the genesis of colonisation in Africa. But if there was any way that you could give us a potted history to help us understand the cultural and ethnic grievances between the two groups, understanding that it's rooted in colonisation and the, the history of Africa, what would you say to that? What would be the way to understand the, the tensions between the groups? Well, first and foremost, um, there's no one uh, direct historical account with, with this that everybody agrees on, as, as with any, um, any country that has multiple groups of people, there are always going to be differing perspectives. But as far as I understand it and as far as I've been able to spend my life researching to, to really try and understand, um, the history starts with when we first had colonial rule coming in. So because we're a landlocked country, pretty small, um, right in the heart of Africa, we've got borders with places like Uganda, Burundi, um, Congo and Kenya. Uh, so, and then also our country is incredibly mountainous. So geographically, it just led to a, a point where we had been avoiding colonial interference up until the late 1800s. So that's pretty recent in um, colonial terms in Africa. And it's the late 1800s that the Germans first came across and we became part of what was then called German East Africa. Um, but Due to what was going on in Germany and indeed the rest of Europe at that time, late 1800s into early 1900s, they had to call out their uh, particular groups and troops as they had their own concerns to deal with over in Europe. And so at this point in time, uh, Rwanda then transfers in this great carving up of uh, Africa from NATO at that moment, so around 1916, I believe, and uh, Belgium becomes what's known as a protectorate so technically not a not a colonial ruler but there was this system of what were, was called uh, mandated protectorates as nations that were greatly assisted by a European nation um, in their purported development now one of the issues that you face at this moment is that uh, Belgian groups then tried to find ways of designating who's who, who, who are we um, protecting in this, this country? And some of the mechanisms, as I said before, that they used are absolutely ludicrous. Um, everything from measuring someone's height, the breadth of their nose, the shape of their nose, and giving an arbitrary designation to say, well, um, because of these factors, we say that you must be Hutu or because of these particular physical attributes, you are Tutsi. Um, and there's also a third group that no one, well, very rarely people speak of, but it is important to speak of as they are some of the earliest inhabitants of the land, and that is the Twa. Um, they are a group of pygmy people who live high up in the mountains and they are the smallest minority as well. 
because of their physical stature and their um, very secluded uh, lifestyle, they like to keep themselves to themselves and lead a quiet life up in the mountains. It's fairly easy to designate who is a Twa, but as for Hutu and Tutsi, that becomes a lot more complicated. As we see, and as we said with colonial rule though, uh, sometimes it suits you to align yourself to one particular group or another in order to keep a level of destabilization in the country, which then reinforces the country's supposed need of you as a colonial ruler, or in this case, as a protectorate. So that's something that Belgium fosters. It's something that France tries to get in on as well. Uh, it's the French speaking side of Belgium that, that came into Rwanda. So Rwanda for a long time was a majority French speaking country. So as a Francophone, that also becomes a place that is of interest to France. This is where it gets really tricky going in from the early 1900s, say across to the 1960s. There's this idea that, you know, Africa is, is becoming independent in general. This is the main uh, sequence of independence um, across the country. But Rwanda is one of the later ones to, to this, as we've got the complication of not quite having a colonial ruler, yet they're acting like a colonial ruler in having a, a protectorate. And so it's in 1960 that we have a, uh, an independence of a sort, but an independence with great government economic ties to both Belgium and France. So again, it's really in creating this um, system of dependence that you can divide and conquer, so to speak, and, and keep certain groups feeling uh, particular tensions. Historically, we've worked together as groups of people um, we had our own system of rulers, but we also had our own system of government and chiefdoms um, and economic ties and trade. Rwanda is one of five countries that are part of the hand, as we call it. We're one of the sources of the Nile with Lake Kivu. The Nile, uh, a lot of people think, starts up in Egypt. It actually ends in Egypt. It starts in the heart of Africa with this massive water basin that we sit on top of. And so we have had trade relationships um, with Northern Africa and across to the Middle East for going into millennia. And this type of um, Indigenous ruling system doesn't suit uh, colonial um, mechanisms of government because we are beheld to our own trade and ties rather than giving all of our perceived value and resource across to European rule. So coming into, say, the 50s and 60s, this grab for independence happening across Africa, all of a sudden you start to see a bit of a rise up in some anti-Tutsi sentiment. And that's something that's developed and fostered. That's indeed supported by um, groups of French, arguably groups of Belgian uh, people as well in trying to put across this idea of you're not being treated very well. So, you know, if you work with us, we'll help you take back your country. And this is really the start of a lot of tension between groups of people whereby 
over generations, teaching this through school, broadcasting this on radio and on TV, you have a mass almost brainwashing system um, that instills this hatred and instills a hatred where it didn't exist before. And so that really is the start uh, of things. And then it gets a lot more complicated from there. But again, I would say, if you're interested in some of the, the finer detail and, and looking at the mechanism of it, the Muse report is quite astounding in the way that it brings it across very plainly and um, over many pages goes into a detailed history of how uh, you can pit two groups against each other where there was peace and harmony beforehand. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Women. I'm speaking with Stephanie Cabanyana Kanyandekwe, a Rwandan British composer and storyteller. We're talking about Rwanda, the legacy of the genocide, how the country's healing, and what things are like today. Well, I do want to talk about the Muse report, which, as you mentioned, was released in, I thought it was released in March, but uh, could also have it's been released April, in April 2021. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it reveals that France was complicit in the genocide and was, in fact, a financier of the Hutu side. You've talked about some other revelations in the Muse report. What can you what can you say about what this report tells and why did it take till 2021 for this to become public? Um. Well, I'll answer you in reverse. So why it became, uh, why did it take until 2021 for a report like this to exist? Um, We'd have to go back through the history of of relationships between France and Rwanda. After 1994 and the genocide against the Tutsi, um, France, you know, France had sent troops into Rwanda and Rwanda as a governmental body had later then come back to France and said, you you protected genocide suspects. And to this day, there is a claim that there are a number of genocide um, suspects who are protected living in France. Um, so in 2006, scrolling forward a few years, uh, the president um, who's, who's been around since that time, Paul Kagame, uh, breaks diplomatic ties with France Um, As a French judge accuses Tutsi people and also accuses um, the president, Paul Kagame, um, of gunning down that plane that kicked off the 1994 genocide on April 7th, as we were saying, with uh, both the presidents of the time, the president of Rwanda and the president of Burundi were both in that plane. So because that French judge makes that very direct accusation of the president, he breaks diplomatic ties and says, like, this is outrageous and we need a break from this particular connection with France as a country. A few years later then, 2009, Rwanda joins the Commonwealth um, by its own volition. I don't think people know that, that uh, countries can choose to join the Commonwealth. It's not always a process of colonisation that leads to a country being a Commonwealth country. Um, So Rwanda chooses to go into the Commonwealth. And part of the reasons for that are to join up with the rest of East Africa, 
who are largely English speaking, but also have a lot of great economic ties with the UK and English speaking countries such as Australia and the UK and uh, the US. So because Rwanda joins the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth has um, a series of, of peace agreements with France and has a lot of economic agreements as well with France, they're you know, across the pond from each other, so to speak, Rwanda then restores its diplomatic ties with France in 2009. Then the next year, the then president um, Sarkozy visits Rwanda and he says the words, France made mistakes. So that's 2010, and that's the first time that we hear in our history that um, France is admitting that they've done some, some uh, wrong. The next year after that, 2011, uh, our president, Paul Kagame, goes over to France, visits Paris, and he says it's time to leave history behind. Um, we don't forget what happened, but we need to find a path forward. So what the, the Muse report um, does also say is that in, in the recent, what's called the Duclair Commission um, of the French government, there is an admitting of some level of responsibility without actually concluding it. If you read the report, and again, it's another report that's available online, and yes, there is an English um, version as well uh, online, so Duclair, it, D-U-C-L-E-R-T. Uh, if you read that particular report, there, there's great illusionary words. There's, there's statements like we have overwhelming responsibility um, and we, we consider our responsibility to be institutional, ethical, intellectual, cognitive, moral, political. But if you get to the concluding statements of the report, it does say very directly, we are limited um, by the amount of resources and the amount of access we have uh, to particular documents in coming to a strong and firm conclusion. So in, in, in essence, France is saying we've done some wrong. We're not going to say specifically what wrong or to the extent that we're wrong. We're just going to say we've done some wrong. So it's, it's a, I would say, I mean, to quote the words of um, Don Watson, Australia's, you know, amazing political speechwriter and creator of the Weasel Words Dictionary, it's much ado in terms of nothing. There's, there's a lot of statements that lead to no firm conclusions, which is frustrating as uh, they were saying that they don't have access to particular documents, but the whole Duclair Commission was to look into France's archives. So if France doesn't actually have it, access to their own documents we don't know who else can and there's no other way that we can as as a Rwanda group of people investigate that any further we can only work with the documents that are opened and given to us. Well this might be a cynical view but surely the reason that there is no direct liability admitted on France's behalf is because France would then be liable for reparations wouldn't that be an obvious reason why there aren't these conclusions drawn? That could be um, a reason. I personally wouldn't say yay or nay to it. I think it's just, unfortunately, it's just very, very complicated. Um, I think when two countries have, have seen that there's been a very difficult past together and yet both countries have made um, a commitment 
to try and work together and to move forward at a certain point in time what does that look like you know how how do you then keep on going back to a moment and saying well un until you give me a definitive answer or until you admit a full amount of responsibility we can't move forward um that's just unfortunately not the way of economics if we did that we might potentially be negatively economically impacted. And, you know, for context, Rwanda has a GDP that grows by about 8%. Um, and we're one of the fastest growing economic, economies in, in Africa and one of the strongest. We've held the World Economic Forum a number of times because of our commitment to progress. And sometimes the bitter pill of progress is working together when a relationship has been difficult. So I think that's that's where we're at at this moment. Um, I, I can't see a future where reparations might be considered. I think historically looking at uh, colonial rule, colonial interference from other nations, reparations is very, very difficult. Very few people have been able to achieve that. And you can spend a lot of time and a lot of money in international rulings and courts to try and to try and prove it. But is that going to damage a relationship that is better for you if you can find uh, peaceful talks together and find a mutual relationship that develops both of your economies? That was Stephanie Cabanyana Kanyandekwe, a Rwandan British composer and storyteller. We were talking about Rwanda, the legacy of the genocide, how the country's healing, and what things are like today. Tune in again next week for the second part of this story. But if you're very keen to listen to it now, the podcast is up and available. But that's all we have time for on today's program of Accent of Women. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. The music for Accent of Women was written and produced by George Kanjeri. If you want to hear this show again or any of our previous programs, you can download the podcast from 3CR's website. That's 3cr.org.au. Go to the Accent of Women page and follow the links to this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the producers of the show, you can write to us at accentofwomen at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter or like our page on Facebook. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Giselle Hanna and I look forward to your company again next week.